suck. Uh, this is episode, I think it's eight. At this point, we've probably lost count. Um, but today, we have chosen um, to address an important issue. We're doing an episode called um, Public Service, What Films Don't Suck, According to Film Suck. Uh, and this, uh, we'll get into the reasons why we are we are doing this noble thing <laughs> in just a minute. Um, but first, let's, let's talk a, about a little bit of just contemporary news. Evgenia, I know you've been attending the Tribeca Film Festival, so I think we want to report from from that important event. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a bit of an exaggeration. Um, but yeah, so I there's Tribeca still going on now in New York, and I actually attended only two films, part of... Um, one is like actually part of the official like world premiere part of the festival, mm-hmm. which is a documentary about um, the phenomenon of emoji, mm-hmm. uh, which is oh, wow. actually rather <laughs> it's rather insane. It's called pic- picture character. Uh-huh. I mean, I guess it's I guess it's kind of interesting. But anyway, since it's like a friend of us produced it, I I, I shouldn't talk mm-hmm. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about it. Okay, Con- conflict of interest, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, if you're interested in emojis, that's that's something. To, to watch because it's kind of like covers the history of that starting in Japan in late 90s mm-hmm. and uh, and then Apple and all the Silicon Valley companies kind of creating the unified sort of um, I forgot what it's called Unicode some kind of like uh, another company that um, oversees the mm-hmm. creation of all the emojis so it's extremely hierarchical right. which is um, yeah it's, it's actually really really bizarre there's like basically a, yeah like a board of um like just a few, I don't know how many people who decide which emo- what can become emoji and what cannot. Right. Yeah. But anyway. Wow. So and but another thing which I I guess I found more interesting was mm-hmm. um, the 35th anniversary screening of This Is Spinal Tap, mm-hmm. um, that followed by I mean a somewhat short concert by the Spinal Tap wow. kind of members. <laughs> uh, there were like um, three of them, the most important ones. And mm-hmm. um, what is it? Michael Keane, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer. Harry Shearer, um, yeah. yeah. and they were just briefly also joined by like, um, what's his name? Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. That was a surprise. Wow. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, so it was, but the, okay, I'll briefly talk about that because mm-hmm. partially I, um, well, I generally like the mockumentary genre, or I, I think Christopher Guest actually hates this word and prefers, I don't know what, for, for a documentary or oh, something, dear. but I think Fo? it doesn't, <laughs> Fo, yeah, like not even fake, but more like, you know, oh, the French way. <laughs> oh. I don't know. I, I, don't I, like I can go that. <laughs> there's a lot of, I know there's a lot of theory about what to call it, but the, I, I don't, I don't want to go into it because partially my thesis is about it and my thesis uh-huh. is uh, mockumentary too. But so, and I want, and I did, I haven't watched this film in, in I think in years <laughs> and uh, when I did watch it again this um, this weekend it was sort of a disappointment it turned out first of all it's like doesn't actually seem as sharp as you would remember it sure there are like a few funny lines here and there but overall but sh- really it's, yeah I am shocked. I mean it's not that sharp I remember it as like one of the great, great American comedies. It really isn't. I haven't seen it in years either. Well, see it now. I mean, wow. it depends. So basically, okay. Beacon, it's a big theater on Upper West yeah. Side. It was like fully sold out. Uh, there were mostly uh, hardcore uh, fans of just Spinal Tap. And it seems like 
old rockers too who mm. probably play like <laughs> music themselves and sort of like the commentary on their own culture and people first of all wouldn't actually even allow to fully normally watch this film because they would laugh every every minute right. almost at every line right. and um, so clearly I, I imagine there are a lot of people who did find it extremely sharp and witty and still no, but there's also that horrible thing that when people know that something is an approved work they'll all over respond so like now everyone goes to West Anderson films prepared to mm-hmm. be enraptured and to la- over laugh at everything and over appreciate everything because he's got such a reputation. So that could be because just considered everyone, cute and funny. Yeah. yeah, everyone knows this is supposed to be an incredibly funny film. So everyone laughs. It's that it's a it's a phenomenon I've seen that drives me nuts. I just hate it. That's interesting, but I guess I I I, I bet you're right. But in this case, it's really just all like fan like mm. diehard fans. So right, I don't right. think they were forcing it and mostly it's like an older kind of male audience Mm -hmm. of a certain look I don't know how to describe it but yeah but basically it's it's very kind of specific the the fan base is sort of specific yeah (laughs) and uh, I felt like the the youngest person there honestly and uh, (laughs) but but that's like that's besides the point and um, the the thing with that uh, you know this film was actually made it almost as a documentary. So most of the things were improvised. Nothing was scripted. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a treatment for scenes, but all the dialogue is improvised, probably except that line about the 11, because they clearly built oh, right. the whole Delta <laughs> right, 11, right, right. the 11 number, right? Um, mm-hmm. And probably a few more, but it's all improvised. So I don't know. You can watch it again, but I now, when I really immersed myself into this uh, satirical mm-hmm. comedy stuff, uh, I noticed that this one really didn't, didn't seem sharp. Sometimes it's funny. Most of the funny stuff was like the physical comedy of them being rockers on stage in this tight pants and just being kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. and the homoeroticism of this all. But the funny thing afterwards, so there was a little concert and you can tell the guys could like sing mm-hmm. pretty well. Probably not as well as real <laughs> big rock stars, but they could sing. And um, there was a quick kind of Q&A, mm-hmm. very short with um, like Rob Reiner was uh, moderating. And the thing was like, I don't know, Christopher Guest was extremely cagey and uh, oh, yeah. not actually funny in person at all. That's very so just shocking. Like, oh my God. I think he's probably known for it. I mean, he's uh-huh. definitely not going to like sort of like turn himself on uh-huh. outside of the film environment from what I've heard. That might be part of it. But generally he was um, first of all extremely upset. <laughs> That's I guess the funniest part of this all. He was visibly very annoyed that Rob Reiner started slightly mocking him for being um, the Baron. Right, and right. I Actually, used to go at some point to House of Lords maybe, right, right. before they canceled. I think the hereditary membership, and he really just couldn't. He couldn't take it. I think he started kind of like slapping his palm in the armchair, kind of making, trying to make Rob Reiner to shut up. And he wasn't. He didn't basically gracefully make fun of him in return. He just was very angry. Oh, wow, that <laughs> so is so amazing. He, yeah, for those of you who don't know, he's yeah, he's what a baron. So that makes Jamie Lee Curtis is a baroness, which you know I only found out about this myself. I don't know, maybe it was, I forget how many years ago, but she actually went to some ceremony. It was all dressed up in an evening gown and tiara and it was like Baroness, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and that was how I found out about Christopher Guest. And yeah, if you don't know that, wow. Because <laughs> it's he's secretive. It's pretty secretive. It's sort of, well, yeah, but but I guess the larger point I just wanted to make, and I, I had my suspicions before I saw this, 
But, you know, it's like, okay, he's basically an aristocrat. He read an aristocrat from this, mm-hmm. like, banking family. So there was some kind of part of his family were basically court Jews back in England a while back. I don't know mm-hmm. how many centuries ago he can trace his own lineage. And he, all his films, I, I, I do love Spinal Tap overall. Mm-hmm. And The Best in Show, I think it's a really <laughs> masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But most of it, it's like he just looks down. He laughs at the simple people. He laughs at the, probably not in a very mean way. I know it's not like... It has a bite, but it's not too mean. But it's funny, he never he never looks up or even like in the mirror. Do you know what yeah. I mean? That's that's one of the things. And and well, it looks yeah. like I know why, because he doesn't he can't make fun of himself at all mm-hmm. based on how he reacted, you know? Yeah, my favorite's waiting for Guffman and it's just this mm-hmm. genius, insightful <laughs> take on those kind of homegrown community theater communities, which I, as far as I know, homegrown theater community members mm-hmm. love love that movie and just die laughing at it at it and it's very very accurate but people also often say it's very loving he seems to really love these people <laughs> and of course the folk scene with a mighty wind he seems to really also there's a kind of loving quality to the sharpness of the satire it's really an annihilating <laughs> satire of the folk scene a mighty wind I, i'm a fan of of his stuff but you're right he's never done a satire of I can't even imagine him doing a satire of like the upper classes. Certainly not. He the basically British could have, but <laughs> yeah, like the way Woodhouse did. Or, yeah, I mean, and and I feel like he and his lordship kind of position would be the perfect. Would be you the would perfect think. Person. You would think. Yeah. yeah. But no, no, he can't wow. even laugh at the fact that he's a brand. Why laugh at yourself? So it's a weakness not to laugh. It's kind of weird. It was a really weird scene. It's a, I kind of glad I went just because of that. Yeah, that is <laughs> um, really. Bizarre. Are. You'd never expect that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to now have to go watch This is Spinal Tap because we just thought that was killingly funny. But I will admit that we were always puzzled because the director of that is Rob Reiner. And we, and later when Rob Reiner makes all these kind of uh, very soft, you know, terrible films that I hated, we were all like, how did he go from Spinal Tap to all this other drac? And well, <laughs> maybe we over overvalued spot this is spinal tap i'm now gonna have to go investigate this everything's improvised and the real stars are christopher guest and uh-huh. michael McKenna. so it's it's really not much with the directing you know it's more in the cutting room so i, yeah. don't, I don't know you know and well, maybe after he, that yeah, yeah. Maybe he just so. had to say action and cut. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> I know. And he played the director, so yes. it's very meta. So it's like they should right. have given him the director credit. He played the director within this film. Right, 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 right. Huh. All right. But yeah, anyway, so that's all for the news. I actually didn't do much. Thanks, <laughs> much of the but work. thank you for the report. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We were toying with the idea of doing film reporting from film festivals. And this was our first outing. But at least you went and saw that. That's that's what film festivals are really good about. They actually have those kind of special event things that are one offs that you can only see there. And, you know, that's kind of how they generate their excitement. I certainly was not going to cover the San Francisco Film Festival because that's death. I'm just not doing that. So. <laughs> well, yeah, that's like it's also not like prestigious enough for us, all right? Exactly. It's just not. What, what are you talking about? It's not a no, high quality no. enough one. That's why. <laughs> that's exactly why. <laughs> Oh, anyway, so on to our business of today, which is um, <laughs> our public service episode. And I just want to quickly explain, you know, what's the genesis of this and why we're we're doing this thing. And um, it's just because over the years, I, you know, I write a film critic, 
mainly for Jacobin magazine, but I've written for other things. And and just people periodically will ask me as if, you know, I'm the expert, um, you know, what films do you recommend or what are your favorite films? Or even the most, one of the most recent ones was, could I'm, someone wrote me saying, I'm just starting out watching films. I haven't seen a lot of films. And could you just maybe give me a list of what films don't suck? <laughs> and that seemed easier than favorite films. I just can't giving out favorite films just seems too weird to me. I can't name them easily. I have a million films I really love and it just becomes weird. So just can you come up with a list that you could say to people, no, no, this one's pretty rock solid. I would think you coming from any kind of background or situation or experience of watching films, you'd be able to get into this film. Um, I don't know how true this is, but we'll see. I mean, I definitely am I'm disposed to like what darker stuff, genre stuff uh yeah if it's comedy it's going to be more satirical if it's genre it's going to be like action film noir you know hong kong martial arts <laughs> horror um it's just my own personal leaning i mean it's not that i couldn't recommend a bunch of you know golden age hollywood musicals you know the, the, the rule there is always start with singing in the rain by the way because it's the funniest one and where the the talent is the most epic. So, but nobody likes musicals pretty much anymore. So it rarely comes up. So, what was your criteria here, um, Evgenia? Yeah, it seems like well, when we talked briefly before, it's uh, we sort of naturally leaned kind of different ways approaching mm -hmm. the episode. Right. So I immediately thought, oh, public service. So I thought, okay, it's not that I have to kind of name the films that just don't suck and they're good, but like excavate potentially the films that it might be like not too known, but it, but people have to know about them because mm -hmm. they're good. So so they might be a bit, a bit more obscure, I would imagine. So it's almost like I thought of it as a kind of an educational thing. Uh, <laughs> Which I like. But it's also a bit kind of lofty. Who am I to educate? No, really? no. Like, what are you kidding? <laughs> What's the old exile rule? You know, uh, you know, that I am judge. <laughs> you know? Oh, wait. Was it, is it John Dolan's job? Who I think it was John logo, Dolan. Right? Yeah, we had a whole logo about about judgment. And one, but one judgment. of his favorite phrases, phrases is I am judge. And what, he did, huh. we did have, we had a logo and now I forget what it was. Wait, there was, I think the bigger one I might be either way mixing it up but there were two different ones I, the funny one was about Inquisition yes something like the wheel it was the Daily Inquisition and there Daily was a Inquisition. scene of torture and it was something about you know oh oh error error no. has no rights something error like has no that right. yeah, yeah, yeah that was it so yeah your error and judgment should be punished by death and we are the judges we always are the judges <laughs> Ah, those were the days. We had no fear then. <laughs> that was great. So I, I was very admiring that you actually came up with this much harder line of just like, not what, what you might like, but this is what you should know. It's like the same. It's like the other side of the same coin. I think my hate is pure, but also my love is pure. And yeah. it's very kind of exile-like ideologies that just, I guess I naturally over the years adopted. <laughs> well, I don't know. But uh, yeah, I do have it. So yeah, the stuff that I do like, I, I really like. So yeah, we're just going to go through, you know, we each have picked like a roughly a top five, but you know, we've got longer, longer lists that we might be dragging in other others as well as we go. Um, but yeah, uh, just a collection of films you may like, the wimpier version, and you should like. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right. Shall yeah. I go first? I, I actually can start with one we, we were talking a bit about last time. Um, 
um, and we both like a lot, um, which right. is which is Tropic Thunder. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that's a 2008 comedy um, directed by Ben Stiller. Obviously, an American, very much an American comedy, um, and it's it has a wonderful backstory in that Ben Stiller con- initially conceived of doing this movie, which is a you know just a ferocious rip of the Vietnam War. <laughs> movie subgenre um he initially conceived of it while he was working on empire of the sun he was very young obviously he was you know had a very small part um but everyone all the actors all the main actors had to go to actor boot camp um, um <laughs> right. to learn to be pretend to be military people and apparently <laughs> they completely got so immersed or like to think they got so immersed that they they began talking once they were making the movie they began talking about it as if they'd literally been in service and seen real action and everything and they were so pump you know pompous and strutting and ridiculous that that was the genesis for tropic thunder of doing this you know just just really laying into these 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 actors who are so full of themselves who are you know on location making a vietnam war movie and of course overacting like insanely um and how it all goes wrong and they're and you know the director is actually blown up and and and, you know they but they're convinced it's all part of the movie they've been persuaded it is and they have to now act their way (laughs) through the jungles not knowing they're under actual fire but still keeping their performances going as long as they can and it's just one of the great genius american comedies it just spares no one it is ferocious on you know obviously hollywood insider hollywood Hollywood culture. You've got all the, you know, you've got Tom Cruise. We were praising him last episode for his great, great role as Les, as Les Grossman, um, the, the the studio executive who's who's overseeing from a great distance this production, and is just the most vile, profane, you know, killer creep that ever lived. And it was what's even more astonishing is it was Tom Cruise's idea. He read the script. They wanted him for a much less interesting part, which was the I forget. His, I think his name is Rick Peck. Rick the Pecker Peck. That ultimately. No, no. They wait. They wanted him for the. If, I think before Ben Stiller to decided to play it himself. They, oh, they wanted him for Tuck what, Speedman. Yeah, Tuck Speedman. Because oh. then it would be like extra matter because it's oh, literally right, Tom right, Cruise. Right. That's even better. But, oh, then I read a wrong I, account. Wow. No, no, no. I read about it. But then I wonder if Ben Stiller decided to play it himself, which I guess in the end is funny because he's like funnier. Yeah, he's but much then, funnier. But then it's less meta because it, it's not. Yes. <laughs> he's playing Tuck Speedman, the <laughs> ultimate action hero who's last. Films have flopped, and now he's trying to be a serious yeah. actor. That's the conceit. Which is basically a take on Tom Cruise. On Tom Cruise, exactly. Who you know was exhausting some of his supposedly action mojo, and then started doing serious roles. Yeah. So anyway, this is Tom Cruise's idea. Supposedly, Tom Cruise is the one who wanted to do the dance at the end. You know, they they really give to Tom Cruise a lot of the creativity behind this part, which is you know I would argue his greatest part ever because it really shows. If you take away the pretty boy looks, <laughs> what a great performance. Former he is, which I admit I had no idea. I mean, he was so what prejudiced. <laughs> oh, he's so good. No wonder he wanted the I dancing know. scene at the end. He's just magnificent <laughs> at the end. He's really, really just natural. I know. He is. He is. Yeah. So, you know, so there's, he, but he mentions that type with a great knowledge. And I'm forgetting who supposedly he based it on, you know, there's various candidates that they name. But at any rate, he's clearly working from this insider knowledge saying, you know what you don't have? You don't have the vile <laughs> studio head who's ready to slit throats just to get, you know, get what he wants. Um, And so that was all him. 
<laughs> yeah, but I have to say, like, um, it, it's obviously interesting that it's like a spoof on the all these big Vietnam <laughs> war movies. Mm. I guess I probably even like Apocalypse is now. Why not? Right. Oh, it is totally. <laughs> obviously, it is <laughs> in a way. Yes. But I think it's most it's like strongest moment, not just in that spoofing the, mm-hmm. the war, the big Hollywood war movies, but also just showing the complete kind of like this empty vanity of performers right. of actors if the biggest ones the most celebrated ones that that can like assume any role that uh, what is it um Robert Downey Jr. Yes. in order to play <laughs> a black character yeah. actually goes and under his. the knife and gets himself a black kind of tint what to do they his call skin. It? They call it pigmentation, augmentation, or some yeah, crazy yeah. operation that he goes yeah, through. Yeah, but then, and then he completely <laughs> loses himself and there's like this really semi, I mean, all very funny, but also, I mean, it's a, seri- it's a somewhat serious film. It's like, he says, like, who am I? Oh yeah, no, the, his like greatest that. line, it's my favorite line. He says, I know who I am. I'm the dude who's playing the dude who's pretending to be the other dude. <laughs> oh, that's right, that's right. You know it better. And you're like, yeah, I think this is the real crisis of just identity that probably a lot of them go through. Like, yeah, seriously, it's, it's ripping, no joke. It's ripping into method actors. I immediately mm-hmm. knew he was doing Russell Crowe when he has the scenes as Kirk. He's supposed to be an Australian actor. Um, I think Crowe is a New Zealander, I think. But, but he has these big green, blue green um, contact lenses in, and he does this <laughs> eye work, staring, staring into the camera in a smoldering fashion that that, that Russell Crowe always does. But apparently, he was also m- mocking Daniel Day Lewis, and there's, okay, yeah. there's at least one other that you know stay in character. But it turns out Robert Downey Jr. also stays in character, so he was also self mocking. Yeah. He considers oh, himself a total best. method actor. Yes, yeah, and that's that's when you mock yourself. I think that's the absolute gold. And so they had him do the dvd commentary in the voice of the what's the gruff black sergeant he's playing it's a great name i don't remember his name Le- something like lincoln osiris it's just some crazy name so he does the dvd commentary in that voice because one of his great lines is i don't drop character until i've recorded the dvd commentary. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> <laughs> I know it's really like okay it's basically a very sublime film I don't know why it's not as famous as it like, because should of be. the controversy I think um it because was of the retard thing yes like, retard re- date, that's, I'm yeah. afraid it's, it's mm-hmm. a big part of, it's, it's also the blackface thing obviously that's going to be hugely controversial they knew it was I mean they took all of these pains with it I think they showed it they literally showed it I don't know this sounds like it can't be real but I was reading up on it and supposedly they showed it I don't know to the NAACP or some chapter or some damn crazy thing and got all this approval and that, that that's what emboldened them enough to think they could go ahead with this because at first Wait, they were very they showed it to national you know, they the sh- NAACP National mm-hmm. Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Oh, I didn't realize it. So I don't know how true that is. Tested. I was reading up okay. just going, could okay, this okay. have really happened? This sounds like that it's sounds part like of the comedy. Spoof. I know. Yeah. It's so not true. I, I don't know that that could really be true, but it's wonderful if it is true. But anyway, so that was one thing that got a lot of uh, criticism. And then the other was, uh, yeah, the, the Simple Jack, Simple Jack <laughs> which is the wonderful film. <laughs> that Doug Speedman does to try to prove he's a real actor. And so, of course, he tries to pull a Sean Penn or a Tom Cruise, you know, who did Rain Man. Sean Penn did Sam I Am. Um, You know, it became a move you could make if you were really going for awards and prestige that you'd play somebody um, who is in some way, you know, challenged, disabled, however, whatever the correct term. I guess it's more challenged now. Um, And they actually dealt with it with the outrageous advice given by... (laughs) 
Kirk Lazarus as Lincoln Osiris or whatever his name is. Never go full Never retard. Never go full retard because that's that's just a fool. Oh, and it's Dustin yeah. Hoffman in, right? Oh, it's yeah, Dustin, Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman in. In. Yes, Tom Cruise is the brother. He's only in the yeah. movie, yes. He's Dustin Hoffman who actually does the acting. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that you if you want the awards, you never the quote is you never go full retard. And of course it's outrageous yeah. and retard is an ugly word and we all agree with this. But is it funny as insider actor advice? It is totally hilarious. Because it's yeah. all about skewering, you know, this again, this insane uh it's all about the work pomposity of the contemporary actor. It's not like this isn't you know, there would have been old hams like Laurence Olivier who would also take it way too seriously. But there were also a lot of, you know, older actors in Hollywood who were very insistent. We're just at working actors. We try not to take ourselves seriously. That has all died out now. Now everyone's an artiste. <laughs> and everyone is almost everyone seems to take themselves way too seriously. And so it was just you had easy targets everywhere you looked and they took them. I mean, the Vietnam yeah. War film that they spoofed that, that was just sitting there, this huge sacred cow that was yeah. so self-serious about this. But I have to say, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Just like a, like a really, I have to say, ironic thing that despite all this weight and intelligence of Ben Stiller who directed and corroded and then now he went serious he wants to be a serious now he director wants to be a serious director you know Jesus, that, it's that, a, like a escape uh, from Danamore I think it's based uh, oh. he made he directed a whole um, I think it's like HBO show um, mm. about two inmates very serious somewhere upstate New York Fuck. who seduce a woman uh, super supervisor yeah. from the prison and uh, and they like escaped but then they got caught and killed mm. or whatever but it's basically extremely sort of overwrought yeah. drama yeah of course based on real events you know <laughs> so he can, he's so. all the more good at directing this because he knows from the inside what the impulse is and I've always heard that he is like a yeah. prick <laughs> No, but Ben Stiller behind the scenes. Oh, really? Super, like you know, arrogant and you know, dickish. I re I just read you know accounts okay. of people who've encountered him in Hollywood. No friends of his never say that, obviously. But okay, yeah. interesting. But you hear that about a lot of actors, you know, that they're really yeah. awful and really full of themselves. Um, yeah. All right. Well, and that's a disease well, in America. The the someone who's a brilliant brilliant at comedy, truly brilliant. Woody Allen being you know mm -hmm. um, number one <laughs> public enemy number one for this who despises comedy really and is just longing to do serious you know films and so we saw what Woody Allen did to his career and you know constantly mocking the people you know who this he does in the movie Stardust Memories whereas he's getting more and more horribly Euro art um, film director he and he admired Fellini and I guess Bergman the most so he he, it's one of his first films where he gets very, very serious. And in that film, people are constantly saying to him, you know, or saying, I liked him when he was funny and he's mocking the, the, the idiots. Um, yeah. And he's on record as saying, you know, what's, what's comedy? Comedy's nothing. The great directors are taking, you know, are taking on serious philosophical questions. Blah, blah, blah. Well, comedy can take serious, exactly. take on serious philosophical where, questions. It's like, yeah, it's really bizarre. Where to did say. we get this idea that comedy cannot take on serious issues? Like it's something we invented at some point. In Is it mind. American? Do you think thing? it's so Is American? It's uh, at least um, as far as I know, anyway, this is where it flourishes. I don't think other countries uh, are quite as infected with this sickness 
this, that if you wanted yeah. to be serious, you have to put on a frowny face and be really pompous and an ass and do high drama. It's so silly. It's really. It and, is. Yeah, it seems to be kind of, well, <laughs> it's sort of unsophisticated, let's put it this so way. Because, <laughs> because I think Brits understand that comedy is very profound. Absolutely. Russians do for sure, because yeah. like one of the... Uh, famous celebrated authors back in the day were all like satirists and one of the things oh it's actually okay I, I have like a it's like a side side note but I think it's relevant to this mm-hmm. part of the thing why I think in America probably comedy uh, was not or satire was not such a big thing ever is that there's kind of freedom of speech here or at least in, in theory and in Russia actually historically now too but historically uh, pre-Soviet Russia as well there was a horrible actually censorship and one of the things why writers that's pre-movie even did um, kind of write and discuss and address serious ideas in the comic uh, mm-hmm. kind of setup it's because it was the only way to go around the somewhat thick oh, yeah. censors and that's how it sort of developed I mean that's semi kind of I guess probably known known thing mm-hmm. uh, I wonder I don't know how is it what's the Eng- English thing mm-hmm. but definitely in America that actually historically was not there so there was probably no need to develop a, <laughs> well, yeah, a somewhat it, second <laughs> second layer of meaning and you know it seems like it's a it's a time specific thing up anywhere up through the 60s 70s you still had this sense that through comedy you could just do that's why you have mm-hmm. you know Dr. Strangelove and Lolita as mm-hmm. both as comedies by Kubrick you have these great Great directors who are go who are doing comedy. Some of the some of the greatest filmmakers in America. Uh, obviously, we have a that slapstick silent film tradition. Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, etc. Th- there's that, mm-hmm. but you know, you can go much later with, you know, Ernst Lubitsch and Billy Wilder and Preston Sturgis, and they're all geniuses. You know, the Coen brothers continue to do comedies at a very high level. But I was teaching at Chapman University for a while before I got to Berkeley, and I had a student who was my best student, and it was it did production, and he did these great films um, that were comedic as shorts. And I really wanted him to go on and do his thesis film, and he wouldn't. He, and I said, why? And he said, because you can't do anything visual with comedies. I mean, nobody does. Hmm. Nobody does any real filmmaking, i.e. nothing with cinematography, editing, nothing formally, because it's just you film a series of actors doing skits and you hardly do anything with the camera. And I'm like, that's that's only in the last couple of debased decades, like 80s, 90s, 2000s, you start getting these kind of comedies that are often pulled from Saturday Night Live people, etc. And the idea is you just run the camera on people doing skits and you don't do anything visually. That's new in America, but it really took over. I, I 100% agree with you with this sort of like almost SNL aesthetic in comedies, but I, I was recently watching Bunyal. Mm-hmm. What is it? Frida, I forgot, whatever. Uh, I think one of the, might be the last film. Mm-hmm. And it did look like the collection is smart and witty, but just performed sketches. Right. So it's not like, so sometimes it kind of works. I, I guess I didn't well, mind but- it, but I thought, whoa, this is early SNL. That's what I thought. <laughs> Well, that is maybe he got more extreme because he's kind of known for having for such a famous and revered auteur. He's really known for having a very straightforward shooting style, which is kind of unusual. Yeah. Usually you have. Yeah, there's nothing really to the camera. Yeah. That's the thing. He doesn't but do so- fancy shots or anything like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's more like the idea that, you know, for a lot of people, it just makes no big visual impression on them. You know, comedy is just nothing as, as far as cinema. Um, mm-hmm. And that just wasn't the case um, for a long time. And there's no reason for it. There's no reason. Because that's that's the seriousness of film, you could argue anyway, is the aesthetic. And that, so naturally you drop it out if it's comedy because you're not going to 
you're not going to deal with anything seriously. You're not going to represent anything in a so-called serious way. So it's just insane. I mean, we can talk about lots. I have a bunch of films on my list that we probably won't get to, but that, that are great comedies, you know, that are almost guaranteed to still be funny. I mean, I just picked Some Like It Hot just because it's foolproof and people still find it hilarious. It is very funny. Um it's, yeah. I still remember the last line and I was watching as a kid in Russia about yeah. like everyone, everyone has their own. Yeah. Nobody's what perfect. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> He's being told this an old perfect. man who keeps marrying showgirls and he, he winds up in this affair with what he thinks is a woman played by Jack Lemmon, who is now first tries to say, you know, things like I have a terrible past. I've been living with a saxophone player for years talking about his male roommate. Um, I, you know what? I can never have children. And one thing after another. And finally he goes, oh, he rips off his man. Says, oh, I'm a man, and the guy just goes, nobody's perfect, and he's yeah. But you know, yeah, I think in modern context, that's a very dubious line, and there are different meanings. Of course, now it's, it can you know? it can only get so sophisticated. Probably it's 1959, but Billy yeah, Wilder yeah, yeah. is trying to bring as much sexual and gender oriented sophistication he could possibly bring for the era. It's kind of amazing he pulled off as much as he did. Um, yeah. So, but it's still hilarious. And, you know, that's the main thing we shouldn't neglect about Tropic Thunder either. It is yeah. in the theater. It was one of the funniest films ever. I mean, I, I literally, you couldn't hear big chunks of dialogue and stuff because people would be laughing so hard <laughs> over <laughs> things like, you know, they did a, they start with a bunch of mock Hollywood film previews and one is called Satan's Alley. And it's about two medieval monks who have, who have fallen in love with each other and are, are kind of staring at each other in these big, intense close ups. And it's rough. Downey Jr. and Toby McGuire, and it was just so hilarious. The way that the, the, again, the serious way it was being presented, <laughs> the story of forbidden, uh, forbidden desire in the in the monastery, that people were just dying to the point that you you miss the next mock previews. It was really. It was really a great moment in theater. That happens very well, rarely. Rich, it's a very rich film. Every every minute like has a lot of going on. Regana, exactly. Right? It's a really it's yeah. an unusually you know dense and you know kind of um, hard hitting kind of kind of refusing to be reverent about anything. So yeah, it's a great. Film. You know, speaking of comedy, since I think we should move on, I had um, on my list um, the Godard's film from 1967, uh, Les Chinois, yeah, the Chinese. Mm -hmm. You, you know of it, right? I, yeah, which no? I saw when I was an undergrad and did not get at all. But so please, huh. I have a I have a go Godard phobia myself. So huh. yeah, no, you can you can like I mean say what what you think I guess no, after but go ahead. I, I say yeah okay. So basically, well, I definitely I watched it for the first time mm. I don't know, years ago. I think I probably didn't understand much back then either. I was maybe like my I don't know <laughs> late teen. I was I think fifteen, and um, then I rewatched it last year actually, and uh, there was a what, two years ago there was some kind of fifteen year anniversary and the thing is it actually remained is almost like aged and became better because what Godard is doing there and I think everyone should watch it especially among the sort of idealistic or politically oriented lefty lefty people <laughs> right is because Godard I know mean, he's somewhat cynical and I think he might have been um, somewhat um, I don't know what he is is he considered the Marxist or whatever Absolutely. he calls himself he's, he goes yeah but he's still a bourgeois far. filmmaker he he's still a bourgeois is. filmmaker <laughs> yeah. so it's a contradiction whatever I don't want to go into mm. the Godard theory but basically he made this film a year before the wide wave of the student protests in, um, in Paris or 
actually all over France. And in a way, he sort of predicted the vacuity and that nothing came out of it, really. But the, what, what, he, what he does with this film, um, I found it actually pretty funny, is that he really ca- captures really well, even if it's a bit annoying and artsy, but he captures really well this sort of like the mood and, and the kind of the feel um, that you have around this young, uh, I mean, semi-idealistic bourgeois people who flirt with um, revolutionary ideas, mm-hmm. which is clearly just a phase. Mm-hmm. They're like all have industrialist parents and stuff like that. And um, and they obsess with Mao's little red book because I think Mao line of the lefty of, of whatever of socialism was big in mm-hmm. France in the 60s. He clearly kind of goes to, to Mao. And uh, the apartment that most of the action takes place is, <laughs> is like <laughs> crammed with uh, this little, <laughs> with Mao books. It's mm-hmm. like to the point of complete absurdity. And uh, there are like funny songs that people, um, there's like a funny, a famous song that people sing there with Mao Mao. But the thing is that it really, it really captures something that I think I still see today. I don't want to necessarily call names, but something around, obviously not everyone, but the feel around some of the uh, man some around some of the lefty like Marxist oriented uh, Jan media people is is somewhat of the somewhat similar when you when you hang out even I don't know at some verse loft I don't know at least in New York I started feeling that uh, rewatching this film <laughs> makes it relevant today and um, again the funny part of the film and I didn't know until after I read about it because I think it's sort of not really coming through but supposedly Godard was inspired um, by Dostoevsky The Possessed oh well, yes you I know, read about that, that yeah I wish yeah, I'd known that at the time yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> no The Possessed but it doesn't matter if you know it on because I think it doesn't add anything here it's really like a free it's really not much there mm. let's put it this way but he was supposedly inspired by it um, and The Possessed is, a, is actually a great novel I think probably mm-hmm. the best by Dostoevsky about this um, clique of um, semi-professional revolutionaries who are trying to conspire in Russia in uh, late like uh, third quarter of 19th century and to like supposedly overthrow mm-hmm. the Tsar and they fail and they're and they're just like complete basically crazy <laughs> kind of semi-crazy people mm-hmm. and they want to do terrorism and all this stuff but in the end it's like all well, fails mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, so yeah so the Chinois has that element because one of the girls I think tries to assassinate someone yeah. but by accident goes to the wrong hotel room just <laughs> <laughs> missing the, or mistaking the number and kills the wrong person there's like a obviously it's over the top kind of just uh, I don't know almost like a far, farce but but I think it still captures something and I don't know if you watch it today you might you might actually appreciate it better because I definitely did. Oh, I think I would. Because, that, because that's, yeah, that's, but all I can remember is it was this very, what, uh, you know, intensely insular set of relationships that have all these personal cruelties between people, but that are all being justified at a high flown mm-hmm. level of politics and ideology, which seems very, let's just say I've seen it, <laughs> you know, where you you do cruel breakups with whoever you're, you're going out with and you justify it according to something, you know, <laughs> something how they've aired politically. Or in other words, you transpose all of your little personal, you know, likes, dislikes, loves, hates into, you know, supposedly elevating political terms. And it just is all the more vicious because of it. That's all I can remember. <laughs> from the movie, really. 
Yeah, I get it. You could, and if from years ago when I watched it, I also would probably remember just different because people actors stuck to the camera, mm. break the fourth wall, whatever. It's just not impressive when you remember just like statements. But when you when you kind of get the comedy of it, mm. which I by accident did, I didn't force myself into this. And uh, yeah, I think it's it eventually funny. And I thinking like since we're already like somehow in this like comedy film rant and I exalt, exalt them. Mm. Should we? What do you think about Doctor Strange Love? Because it's so relevant because of the Russia Gate, and it's the funniest film by Kubrick. Yeah, do, do and you like it? It's the great. Oh yeah, I do. I like it very much. Yeah. It's the great black comedy. I mean, yeah, in it's a, which is practically a dead form now. You know, that's just, <laughs> why is it dead? By the way, I don't know. I've been saying for years, where is where is the black comedy that should be coming out of this absolutely god awful, impossible, um, estranging <laughs> era we're in? It just seems like the natural move to make, and we've gotten just a tiny few. Like Death of Stalin is a black comedy, mm -hmm. but it's very rare. It usually doesn't do very well if it comes if anything is ever done. It just is. It seems like it's pretty much close to a dead form, and I just am baffled. It's perfect for right now. We need to be just like scathingly, you know, mocking and ridiculing what actually is going on. I think that would be very a very healthy response as part of a way of rejecting it. I think that's why it was, you know, starting to flourish in the kind of mid 60s, which is when Strange Love is like, what, 64 or something like that. It's sort of I a think herald so, yeah. of at least the height of the Cold War. Yeah. yeah. And it's the sort of heralding what's coming, which is the, you know, the the increasing amount of revulsion and rebellion. Rebellion, which admittedly doesn't go very far beyond some social changes, but still it's something. Um, and yeah, he, of course, Kubrick does some some very radical stuff. He started it off as a Cold War, supposedly anyway, a kind of drama. Um, and then just, you know, when he's reading the material, he's going to, you know, he's going to use, he's just like, <laughs> no, this is a black comedy. And he got access supposedly through a military connection to the actual language um, that mm -hmm. we're supposed to be used, in, you know, if we come to the time of essentially nuclear apocalypse and we're raining bombs and destroying everything, this, these are the procedures militarily that you're going to follow. And and he just lifted it all. And so people are actually reading essentially from manuals, from instruct, military instruction manuals um, <laughs> to carry out the dropping of the bombs that are going to mostly end the world. Um, so, yeah, it's and it's got all the brilliant, you know, uh, what? Peter Sellers. Yeah. yeah, it's got Sellers in three roles, but it's ripping into, of course, the American government and all these recognizable characters. He's plays the president, this mild, you know, Midwesterner whose who's whole era of you know polite understatement you know completely <laughs> cuts against the monstrosity of everything that's going on so he's got the line you can't fight here this is the war room when a fight fist fight breaks out um, among <laughs> yeah. all the high military and government people who are in the quote-unquote super grandiose war room um, watching you know you know as you know Soviet is the American bombers are heading right toward the Soviet Union and they've got minutes and they're all arguing and, and of course it's got the great well, I shouldn't say that. One of the great um, George C. Scott performances as, um, what is it again, Bud Turgidson. There's all these sexual metaphors that run throughout the entire film, um, including when you start, there's a song called Try a Little Tenderness playing as one airline is fueling another and it looks like the mating of two military planes. And of course, you've got, yeah. you've got Sterling Hayden as G General Jack D. Ripper. And he's the one who becomes convinced that our precious bodily fluids are being 
infiltrated by the Russians. And yeah, but the funny thing, <laughs> I, I read that I think someone in the government, after watching or like been in some screening of it, early mm. ones, said, oh, this he made a documentary. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it's like... Sure, it's black comedy, but it's also very, very like disturbingly close to reality. Oh yeah, I mean, it's not like you have to hunt, hunt very long to to find a kind of connection. So yeah, Ripper has become impotent, and because of his own personal impotence and that he's a crazed American military man, he he generates this wild delusion that it can the only answer can be the Russians. And look where we are right now: the answer to every problem everybody has is the Russians have somehow infiltrated and infected our system. So yeah, we're getting a little a little uh, do-over on, on one of the worst eras of American history. Yeah, so it's a brilliant it's a, yeah, it's a brilliant film. It's inspired um, and it yeah, it has some of the great beautiful set pieces, you know. It's really beautifully handled as cinema as well as as a comedy. Yeah, and as well as the relevancy considering how if you think Russia get well it was crazy and it remained crazy yeah. than the narrative and <laughs> the talk and just, yeah, yeah. it really captures something but yeah, that's, I mean, that still holds true. Exactly. We can all watch, you know, the guy ride the bomb, you know, down. Oh, yeah. That, oh, that was the funniest moment. Yeah. When the guy, the cowboy hatted, you know, Texan, um, you know, rides the, rides the bomb like a huge phallus down and, you know, dies with gloriously, he thinks, <laughs> with it, representing yeah. the American way. Yeah. It all still pretty damn relevant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I feel like it's a good segue since we're writing anyway on this comedy rant and, and talking about America. I think I, I had this on my list uh, kind of in one category because I can briefly just talk about them. Mm. I bet you know this film. So they, they live and in time. Mm-hmm. I know uh, they live. I don't know in time. In time. They're kind of similar. Obviously, they live as this, uh, which... which very funny. They live as um, old John Carpenter's films. Yeah. Is it from the 70s? I can't remember, 70s or 80s, I think honestly. it's early 80s. Maybe 80s. Yeah. I think aesthetically, aesthetic-wise, it's yeah. my 80s. But yeah, and I know, I guess I, sh- I imagine people know about it because it was a pretty mainstream, I guess, popular kind of Yeah, and it's like become a huge film. cult thing, but still, you know, say a few things about yeah, it. Yeah, but it's, but yeah, and I connected within time, which is like a much newer, maybe like from five or mm. six years ago film. So I just, I find like like this sort of funny films pretty like simply made with the metaphor, like with it also very kind of on the surface um almost literal to literal metaphors mm-hmm. they sometimes really work well yeah. I'm kind of almost surprised you think oh it's so crude but mm-hmm. then sure it's crude but then it's also hilarious and and and, and somehow at the same time sometimes transcendent and mm-hmm. profound so they live the, the premise it's very funny um, I mean it's very straightforward it's just that um, there there exists this like glasses that you can put on and see the reality as it is in somewhere yeah. in North what America. The, what's really uh, happening in the world will be what's revealed. What's really happening to you. in the world. And what's <laughs> revealed is that uh, actually we're all the media people and generally all the upper class, most of the upper class were ruled by this weird um, aliens mm-hmm. who we cannot discern without these glasses. They look just like real people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also um, helped uh, by the people who are traitors to the human kind mm-hmm. and work for those aliens. And they're usually the rich 
the rich people. Right. They are upper class people who work with the aliens. And uh, we're controlled by the, the subliminal right. signs that we can only decipher what exactly they are with this, again, with the help mm-hmm. of these glasses, which are very simple. Once you put on the spirit glasses, <laughs> you look at the money and it says, this is yeah. your God. You look at yeah. the, um, some kind of commercial of a lady in a bikini on a shore. It says, procreate, mm. procreate. Like, consume, like, it's a very, you know, you can consume, very eat, simple. procreate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very simple. And you're like, whoa, what is going on? And then that, that that's like both funny and kind of a bit violent kind of action film, but mostly funny. It's like, it seems to be pretty light overall. The feeling of, the feel of it is light. Well, it's I mean, just, it, it's, and, I yeah. think it can be lighter now. Then it seemed revelatory. Uh-huh. I, I know this huh, sounds because strange. Because it's yeah, kind of like a because, in America. Because we were so brainwashed and as, such a majority had gotten on board with, with Reagan. But it just mm-hmm, seemed like mm-hmm. they were just showing us, it was, again, like you say, practically a documentary. It was just like, no, <laughs> yeah. all you got to do is like get one slap upside the head or set of glasses or whatever, and you will be able to see. But for some reason, you're surrounded by people who cannot, will not see mm-hmm. what we're in. So it seemed profound. And in fact, you know, tons of academics, you know, very seriously jumped on board writing about They Live. They Live became this like, <laughs> wow, this is the most meaningful film of our time. So if you were in it at the time, I don't think most people would have said it was funny. I think they would have been like, nope, that's right. <laughs> at least that was my reaction. Just like, it was yeah, no, no, no. I, I say it's right, but it's also more, it's comedic. It's funny in a good way. Oh but yeah, yeah, I think I guess, now you could probably, and you know, it did yeah. have a, you know, a star wrestler was the lead. What's his name again? Uh-huh. Rand, something like Rowdy I Randy Piper. He's so huge. He's like a working class guy. <laughs> He's a total but working like class dude. Ripped and ripped. But ripped in a way that I think just only wrestlers can be ripped. So it's a bit like, it was bizarre. Yeah, it was bizarre, but kind of wonderful too. I, I really liked him. He seemed like, as you say, a real working class guy who's making this this discovery. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And then takes on the aliens, the evil yeah, lizard takes people. On <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so it's a very rewarding film. I can, yeah, I can rewatch yeah, it. Yeah, Carpenter think, in general like every year. is just a great director. Yeah, a great, great director. Right? Because he does horror, he's not sufficiently appreciated, but brilliant guy. God, fuck that. I mean, it's really weird. And because he's actually, his movies are frequently, it's like, I bet he shoots probably pretty fast and they're like not overly produced, but they're kind of raw he's somehow not I don't know it's like I feel there's not enough respect for him overall there's like a cult following yeah exactly yeah but you know and then he it's true it's Mm -hmm. just again it's another basic I don't know probably a prejudice everywhere but certainly in America Mm -hmm. there's a basic anti-genre film prejudice so if you're a genius working in genre people just they don't recognize you. Um, he made Halloween, for yeah. God's sake, right? Oh, no. And like, and what? Yeah. Recognized as a very popular, successful horror film director. But, yeah. you know, if you try to just straightforwardly yeah. say, no, John Carpenter is one of the greatest directors ever who ever lived, people will be you like, know? what? Yeah, but you know what's funny? I 100% agree with you. He's one of my favorites. But like, it's funny. You can say, oh, yeah, a good horror director, a horror director. But why won't we say that usually directors who are just great directors mm-hmm. without any other adjective, they're actually usually what it means is like, oh, drama directors, That's great drama directors. Let's let's bring that in. Like, I won't, I don't want to just call someone a great director. I want to say, okay, they can do drama. Right. Because, <laughs> I mean, why horror is such a, like, an outside exactly. category. And the only way, comedy. the only way you can reverse that is be, to be a Kubrick. You've already demonstrated your brilliance in drama and serious films. Then you can go do The Shining and everyone's like, oh, well, now we say it's brilliant because we already know he's supposed to be brilliant. Oh, no, it's this ridiculous <laughs> <And> it, prejudice. <laughs> Yeah, I know. But anyway, so since I, it's the same category <laughs> yeah. as this film I wanted to briefly mention in time, which some, despite it's been a, a 
fairly, I guess, extensive, pretty big Hollywood film. Very few people know about it. And it was a prob- it definitely had like a, 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 I watched it in the movie theater years ago mm-hmm. when it came out. And I don't know if it had a wide release, but I guess it, it did. did. It was in Los but Angeles. It just died really fast. I remember the preview and intending yeah. to go see it. And then by the time mm-hmm. I got around to go see it, it was gone already. I think it did okay, badly. So- yeah, might have did badly. I need to check. I'm not. I have no idea. But it's actually. I really think it's sort of close. A, a newer version, mm-hmm. different metaphor, also simple of they live. Same time, it's directed by um, Andrew Nichol. Mm-hmm. It's this New Zealand writer and director. He is initially was famous for writing an original screenplay for Truman's Show. Right. Okay. Which I guess Truman Show everyone knows. Yeah. But yeah, and then since then he's been directing films left and right. I, I usually not a big fan of his like this super minimalist kind of style, but in time really works. So in time is a film about it's uh I guess some kind of like near future mm-hmm. where time is literally money, mm-hmm. which <laughs> I'd be um, like, that. <laughs> like very direct, very direct. Mm-hmm. And what, what's going on in that world is that everyone has this weird, like kind of watch uh, on their wrists, mm-hmm. like some kind of biotechnology thing that is not activated until they're 25. Everyone lives I mean, semi-freely, sure, their classes are poor and rich, but till 25, you're good. And when you're 25, the watch kicks in on its own and um, you have a free, I guess, a free given year Mm -hmm. and it starts counting down. And for that to not run out and for for your heart not to stop, for you not to die, Uh because if you zero out, you will die. You need to actually work and you you make money in time. You literally paid in this time. Right. So your watch gets high. Mm-hmm. So that's a pretty simple premise. Right. So rich people don't work. They just have, I don't know, thousands right. <laughs> of years on their wrists and they sit in their uh, different zone, like the, this world or whatever. That's They usually, I think it's just Los Angeles, super segregated. And uh, the rich are somewhere <laughs> in the Mediterranean, some kind of Beverly Hills and the poor somewhere else. And they n- rarely cross because they also have to pay for crossing all the zones. It kind of zoned. And you almost cannot pay because you make barely enough to not die. Mm-hmm. So that's the world. And uh, the funny part that um, it's the main character, like the working class guy, is played by Justin Timberlake, mm-hmm. which is surprisingly amazing in this role. Mm-hmm. And um, in short, he sort of like takes, tries to take down the system with the help of the a daughter of a main banker in that imaginary world. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like a bit Bonnie and Clyde and the runaway and they try to take down her dad and the banks and uh, they convince that there is enough time for everyone mm-hmm. and you don't need to die before your time. That's the biggest part right. because the idea that, again, it's like the simplest metaphor taken to like the kind of the right conclusion is that um, one of the rich characters, uh, one of the rich guys who briefly appear in the film is um, extremely depressed and he wants to die because he's been living for over 100 years, mm-hmm. kind of semi-degenerate, rich lifestyle. There's no meaning. And uh, he just kind of goes to the poor neighborhood and wants to be killed and robbed. Mm-hmm. Just like he, he's, uh, he, want, he wants to end it. And the thing with him, <laughs> he is like, I think one of the, um, I don't know, if morale of the film, he voices it, is that for a few to live forever, many must die. All right. And in a way, I mean, it is like this <laughs> present day vampire yeah, shit. It's, it's totally basically, smart. It, yeah. it's very smart, mm. but also simple and smart. Yeah. Best, but that's, you need yeah. something that everyone can like, okay, I get the idea and then plunge into the details and, and recognize yeah. them and go, yep, that's how it is. Yeah. yeah. And despite that, I, I I mean, I didn't do much of the spoilers because it's not, the film is not about the spoilers. It's still fun to watch. Mm. But yeah. And so it's like a very accurate representation of reality where 
yeah, and the idea is that there, which we don't have yet now, even though I, they clearly try to find immortality, mm. the very rich are looking for it. But there, if you careful and not get killed or injured, you can basically live forever. And if you're poor, you can die from like not getting your check on time or like, I don't know, or something like this right. because your hard work oh, no, stuff. Sp- so that's, that's the deal. What's so smart about that, though, is... Mm-hmm. For at least for a lot of younger people, say up through their up through the end of your thirties, anyway, you don't mm-hmm. realize you're trading your life. You just think, oh, I, they're really fucking me over here as far as money. But you know, time, you know, time actually is money. Which, by the way, is a great Far Side cartoon where you see Einstein at the blackboard <laughs> with scratching his head because he's found out that time is actually money. Um, <laughs> I love Far Side. So I don't good. remember that. That's one, one of my favorite uh-huh. ones. But at any rate. Um, what's so great about that is you don't know until you're middle-aged that you literally have been giving your life. I mean, it's literal. Mm-hmm. Your life is going, going, going. And you don't realize it until you can recognize in your bones that you're actually going to die. And you're probably going to die sooner tired, yeah. because, you know, you've got bad health insurance. All the, all the things that go with this, you're trading, you know, you're trading your labor to try to just be allowed to live. But the very act of having to trade your labor effect is... You're, you're, it's always about how your life is being shortened, and we're literally seeing this now. It's becoming clearer and clearer as people, as the you know the the uh, what the 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 average age that American Americans live is now actually going down. It's been for the last couple of years for the first time and ever you know since in the last since I don't know when, but in a very long in generations. And you know, of course, you could just add in the suicide rate and other things that are affecting people as you know they can't they're not even allowed to be in the system because now there isn't even a way for many people to trade you know to get to get more time there just isn't so because i think people a lot of young people don't realize it i'm more scared for them than they are for them i sometimes think i'm just like you don't realize but but did you realize it's hard to realize oh i didn't early enough you don't feel it in your bones so you Mm -mm. don't really you just feel somehow like it'll go on for you can go on forever like this obviously you know intellectually you won't but you can't feel it Mm -hmm. so it's only oh no it was when i was in my cliche time kind of in my 40s where i'm suddenly like no now i feel it and now i know every year i'm giving away hunks of my life doing what i don't want to do because it's the only way it seems like they'll let me live they up there those people who run everything yeah they yeah, well, it, I have to, at least to be, I guess, fair, coming especially from Russia, I don't know. I mean, teaching is not the word, it's like sort of a, there's a generosity sure, it's involved not my, and like passing the wisdom. <laughs> no, but it's still no. your life. And if it's not what you would be doing, if you, you, finally that gets to be serious in a way, when you're younger, you're tougher and you're just like, mm-hmm. oh, come on, don't be such a baby kind of thing. <laughs> you know, just do it. Blah. But as you get older, you're like, yeah, no, this ain't, this ain't. This ain't funny, actually. This is like even if you find a relatively soft job, it's if it's the job you never would have chosen for yourself. Yeah. If you would have done something totally different, then it's your life you're trading. And it becomes very, very serious as you get into your 50s. Ah, wait for it, those of you who are far away. Yeah, no, that's all true. But that's why this film should be somehow, I feel like, more known. I don't know why I did that. Is it because and... it's starring Justin Timberlake and no one was prepared to have Justin Timberlake starring? I have no, I have no clue. <laughs> I don't know. why. I would imagine it should attract more people. You he know, is super just famous, just not mainstream. as an actor. I mean, he was good. Yeah, he's actually pretty good. He's in um, he's Inside good. Lewin Davis. He's, but he's got a smaller oh, part. Oh, that's right. Um, the Coen's cast. And so yeah. it's just... No, he's good as a lead man because he has this kind of like... <laughs> I don't know where he got it. I actually don't know where Justin Timberlake comes from. But... He could really portray this sort of 
a good man, a sincere sort of common man mm-hmm. who, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Who like is not, does not have the mannerism and is not like those deprived elites who already lived for like a hundred mm. years and always look 25 because that's the whole point. Oh, I forgot to say, you don't age after 25. God, that's, that's the film makes it kind of interesting because everyone look super hot and beautiful. Oh, huh. well, the that, poor that, and the rich right. because you don't age. That changes everything because then that doesn't sound age, so bad. Yeah. You can just stay hot in 25 the rest of your life. Forever, mm. yeah. But, but anyway, but it's, it's still bad because you can die anytime. Right, but... <laughs> but yeah, you stay 25 forever. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's interesting. I forgot that part of the plot because now thinking about it, it's like, I don't know how that, that's sort of, I guess that makes sense. I don't know, especially because why would you want to stay, I don't know, 70 forever mm-hmm. or 80? So the whole premise of the film that they all, the rich holding on to their money and life and time, and which means life because they're really enjoying their, right. enjoying well, their time. Well, and as, you know? as we live it, you know, the working class ages at a tremendously accelerated rate if you're just basing yeah. it on health, well, on anything, on health and how much you can extend it yeah. on your looks because plastic surgery and pampered living and all that other stuff is yeah. far less likely to I age agree. you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's now just thinking for a second, that's not illogical, but that's a bit of a weird part because mm. the, the, the working class of like the factory in the film, yeah. they do look all They're still all 25 hot. because that's the whole point. Yeah, which, no, it's good, but then it's a bit doesn't get at the, I guess, the core also dilemma of not only like wasting your life, getting that working for time or whatever, yeah. but also like is training <laughs> and aging your body pre before your time. Right. But anyway, that's a whole, that's like, I can talk about it for a long time. So the, but the film works overall, even if they're like, whatever, thanks that... Yeah, that it bit off. It would have been more <laughs> yeah, powerful, so. I'd say, if it was forty-five, and then you can see who's really looking beat <laughs> up and bad, and has a lot of terrible <laughs> yeah. conditions. Yeah, that are all about True. work and stress. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's not part of the sum. But okay, come on, you, you can't expect too much. Okay? <laughs> and right? clearly, they they thought this will help the box office because that would just be depressing. So we'll make it twenty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, everyone is like, oh, like you. That's it's also there was a funny moment you can't decipher between let's say you meet someone and there's like three women one is like the girl you like and then you don't know is it her mom her sister who's whose mom there's someone's wife they all look the same yeah. right. <laughs> that, that gets that they're like funny moments oh. it gets confusing yeah. all right. I have to watch that no I'm intrigued all right okay watch it yeah <laughs> all right should we yeah I don't know I'm on this comedy rant but do you want to talk about something out of the sure com- yeah let's comedy because I can yeah let's just say. Now that we've slagged drama, let's talk about a good drama. Um, All right. Of course, it's a Coen Brothers film. It's called No Country for Old Men. It's actually quite well known, so you may have seen it. But if not, it's a good entry point to a lot of things. A Coen filmmaking. Um, I wouldn't have named it if I was picking my favorite Coen film. <laughs> but it's the most easy access Coen film. And I think that's probably why I think it's done the best of any of the films. It certainly won the most Academy Awards, etc. Um, and in fact, critics who normally hate the Coens a lot loved this film. And of course, they attribute it to the fact the fact that they loved this one um, to the superior artistry of novelist Cormac McCarthy, which must be responsible for the film being um, so good. Um, and, you know, and the reason it's it's, you know, not only because it gets you into the Coens and I think they're I had no secret, the greatest American filmmakers alive, but it also brings you into certain 
um, shall we say, it's it's a drama, but it's working within certain genres that are important. Um, just to understanding what kind of a sick mess we're in here in America, um, the Western and film noir, and if you bring those two things together, um, you get this incredible clash of effects because they're two seemingly opposed genres. The Western representing, at least in its classical form, um, our elevated idea of um, the greatness of of certain basic, um, you know, kind of it's the kind of manifest destiny um, um, genre all about American greatness and how we're going to create create the greatest democracy that the world has ever known. No, we don't see any problem with forcing it down, <laughs> you know, with with destroying you know the Native Americans and forcing it down people's throats because it's what's good for everybody. So you've got that genre curdling with film noir, which is all about getting to the 1940s, looking around post post World War II, post World War II, and realizing that the whole American project um, seems to be sick and dark and headed for disaster and already just so infected that there's no way to to feel anything but doom about your life. So you've got these two things coming together in one film, um, and it's. It's a great film for that in that you've got, you know, probably the there's three male leads, but one of them is this sheriff played by Tom Lee Jones. The sheriff's name is Ed Tom Bell, and he, he wants to see himself in a long line of um, noble lawmen of the West. So basically lawmen who are right out of Hollywood films, but in his family, back to his grandfather, he really believes that they have been living out that life and that he's the generation that fails. He's the one who can't continue in this because he cannot deal with what he sees is this absolute sickness of American society, levels of crime that he just can't cope with because it's just so off the charts depraved. So he he winds up retiring Um, by the end, which is not at all what what a, what a Western lawman is ever allowed to do in in you know this kind of uh, Western genre thinking, um, and of course what he encounters is Javier Bardem playing Anton Chigurh, who's practically supernatural in his evil and his capacity for creating mayhem, chaos, sickening violence, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's what finally breaks Ed Tom Bell, and he 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 has a failed attempt at going to to the Western showdown. With this figure, basically, they miss each other, but he also has to admit he's too scared to meet him. And so that's when he retires. Um, and, you know, it's supposed to be a hard, both violent, shocking, which it certainly is. The violence is like people were really freaked and talking about, oh, my God, have you seen this film? But Do you think you like doing spoilers or it doesn't matter? At this point, I say it doesn't matter. We're doesn't, not talking about any current releases. Yeah. So That's true. That's true. Oh, yeah. Tough. It's, it's There's also there's spoilers all throughout. That's true. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it's um, and it's not like you're not going to know because there's in fact, there's a foretelling. There's a classic Cohen voiceover at the beginning um, in which he essentially tells you he can't As he says, I can't push my chips forward (laughs) against something that I can't understand. So he already tells you at the beginning in the voiceover. And you're getting images of American landscapes as barren. They're kind of beautiful, but they're also kind of barren and empty. And and he's he's talking about this chaos that's come into the world. Of course, at the end, his uncle, who was also a lawman, is going and, you know, he's now, you know, in a wheelchair because he was shot while on the job, is just telling him it was always like this. What are you talking about? And he says, this country has the devil in it drives people crazy we've always had this level of mayhem and crime and people flipping and evil and everything else and it's not this ain't about you you're just you know in other words you're an idiot and it's a great film that's about 
figuring out what America's about, or at least filtered through these two genres that were very important um, genres That's that true. are still hugely influential, even if we don't make a lot of film noir or a lot of Westerns, film noir and Western elements have filtered into absolutely everything we do. They're everywhere. They're in science mm-hmm. fiction. They're in action. They're in, they're in, they're everywhere. Um, and I think they're just a central way of looking at the American project. So very educational. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have put it that way. And it's a, and it's a great, great <laughs> film. It's just going to, you know, I've never showed it to an audience that wasn't yeah. hugely impressed and sort of that it didn't have an impact on. Whereas if I told you to see a serious man, <laughs> you'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, you'd, you might have a very much harder time with that one. Well, I loved it, though. Oh, I adore but, it. Yeah, but that's, I adore yeah. it. <laughs> but I, I know what you mean. Um, but yeah, you know, when you say or defining kind of like a film about America, obviously America, there's like, there are like multiple Americas, I guess, within mm-hmm. America. And uh, when I think about that, um, there was this, uh, I put storytelling, the film by Todd Salons on my list. Yes, I know. It. Partially, yeah, yeah, but partially, be- why? Because I actually think, well, Todd Salons is just generally constantly almost like remaking one film, mm-hmm. like many, many actors. But this one specifically really gets, at least my experience of America, which honestly was uh, more, now I understand, Im- embedded in this kind of, liberal, I guess, upper middle class American culture. And this is one of the most brutal kind of take and satire portrayal of that culture in general. And most of the Todd Salon films are like that because he makes films about his kind of like upscale New Jersey suburbia types. Mm-hmm. And uh, But this one specifically gets at something. And I, I don't know what your take on it, but I have to say that it, I think it's also ed- educational. It's kind of offensive and funny, but it also is profound because, uh, well, partially because I am in the MFA program, right. not creative writing. Fortunately, whew. yeah. <laughs> but, but whatever, integrated media arts film. And uh, the culture is pretty, pretty similar. It's this really kind of wimpy, having nothing to say, uh, suburban. Urban, uh, upper middle class, mostly kind of like this, like very kind of boring, just like self-involved environment. And that's um, that's part of the storytelling because storytelling is divided into parts. One he called it's all, it's a fiction film, but one is called fiction. One the first part of it mm-hmm. that is about the um, group of um, MFA creative writing students. Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's really funny. And the other part is nonfiction, uh, which follows a, sort of a Paul Giamatti playing a kind of this, I forgot what he was, some kind of like loser in his middle age that, that now all of a sudden wants to pursue documentary filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And he successfully does so by attaching himself to uh, a young kind of stoner guy in high school who is trying to apply to university. And he basically uh, captures this application process and his family dynamic and all that. And it's sort of semi-exploitative and kind of funny. And it allows uh, salons to show also again this family dynamic of the upper middle class like suburban kind of new yorkers with a trinidadi or something like that or mexican i think it might be mexican uh servant mm-hmm. who eventually uh after being treated so poorly <laughs> by this supposedly well-meaning people she sets there and and she gets fired and she sets their house on fire mm, yeah but but anyway there's like all this that's usual salon stuff the, mm. the class dynamic but 
But it's also both of these parts from from my experience as an outsider in the sculpture is just drinks so true to life, both in this like portrayal of obviously one example of documentary filmmaking mm-hmm. and one documentary filmmaker that is <laughs> so true. Just kind of having nothing to say, attaching yourself to some kind of like some person who has, I guess, some sort of screen presence mm. and then and then just following them as if they're like, you know. Revelatory or something. That. Yeah, <laughs> sort of re- yeah. revelatory, but it's all like, yeah. But also just literally being like a semi-parasite. Right. And then also just exploiting someone semi-gullible and uh, for your own career sake. And, uh, you know. Yeah, right. Not letting people know what exactly you're doing, which is a lot of can be journalism can be like that and a certain kind of documentary filmmaking can be like that as well which is the same yeah and so both of those parts fiction and fiction really in a way sums up my I, I might be not very good retelling right now but it's kind of sums up my experience of this yeah of, of the liberal American culture that I've been immersed in for the last like seven years yeah and, I, and I re- now this film yeah oh, no, no go ahead that's pretty no that's pretty I was just saying that I watched this film for the first time back in Russia over a decade mm-hmm. ago uh and now I understand it much better when I rewatched it right a few years ago <laughs> and I was like oh all right I see uh-huh. it's actually a documentary <laughs> I mean sort of right again yeah no I re- mm-hmm. for some reason I remember the first part mm-hmm. much much better the writing workshop thing and I remember it 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 was so nightmarish because it reflect. I had a I had a tiny experience in a creative creative uh, uh, writing class mm-hmm. where they that's how they handled it. It was all workshopping, and it was the most vicious experience I ever had. <laughs> I, I quit the class in a, a couple of sessions right after I went up. I went up and I did very well. I, I but other people went up and just got crucified by this wimpy teacher that you just figured but he was just mean underneath and you could just tell he'd never done really anything himself and <laughs> but all in the way all the other students really got into it and so it became this kind of oh here we're we're given permission to slaughter each other um and so people were just admittedly a lot of the writing was terrible i mine was probably terrible too i'm not sure why i was spared except that i wrote something so savage and slashing as much as i could that it was like daring anybody to come at me <laughs> but I didn't care. The the situation was such an ugly one and it seemed to be there to be ugly, to like give people the worst kind of power over each other and all over nothing. It was all bad writing. It was all, as you say, nobody had anything to say. <laughs> nobody had any particular talent as far as I, I could judge anyway. I certainly didn't think he, the guy leading the class, had any business judging anybody. And so anyway, I bailed out and ever since then I've just steered clear of any that was initially what I wanted to be I wanted to be a, you know wanted to write fiction wanted to be in creative writing so-called and I just bailed as fa- hard, fast and hard as I could and just yesterday I read an expose I forget in what the New Yorker or some damn thing um, of the Iowa the most famous writing workshop the Iowa writing workshop and it's just absolutely appalling history <laughs> of sexual abuse harassment of a kind of cult of Norman Mailer that allows all the macho men <laughs> to hold forth slash into anyone else's writing and you know sleep with all the all the students who are horribly cowed of course and looking for any way to to catch the eye of a noted author and it's just like that kind of sickness seems seemed baked into the experience I, i i just found it appalling that that it continued 
So it seemed that, and the film captured that super well, <laughs> like these awful sessions where you want to run away from the movie because you got to sit there while, you know, this, this noted author holds forth at the seminar table and rips into everybody. And of course, you know, is going to wind up having an affair with the, with the, well, the woman played by what? Selma Blair, I think. Selma Blair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then the other, I think another, like a pet, a pet student. Yeah. 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 The group as well. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> But yeah, but today it won't even be probably would have had time to get released because there's like this the um, uh, the the writer who is the head of this mm. workshop. He's a black writer, and uh, Selma Blair kind of has some kind of fantasies about <laughs> right. him. And then during the liaison, she kind of says the N word. It's like the whole thing. I think now it wouldn't be able. What is it made in two thousand? Mm. Now it probably wouldn't be able, even as a satirical no, thing. No, I don't think so. Probably would have hard time being released under. I don't know what's the rate again. What's the rating of it was, but probably was not too harsh back then. Yeah, but now, yeah. But I don't know. Yes, I thought it was hilarious and very spiteful. Well, and I do and, remember and overall very true. And yeah, and the last moment had a really. I think the last line was really great, where she winds up using this kind of nasty sexual encounter they had, and she uses yeah, and she it says, <laughs> in her story yeah. to the group, and he's just attacking and just mocking it as like fake. Oh no, no, wait, no. The last line is not no, that. The last says, line she finally uses that that. Um, that story with their encounter and he again trashes us, but says that finally a story at least has the beginning the middle and the end oh I thought it was when that? she yelled but it's true but maybe that was that was earlier I guess so no the last line is literally says, it's kind of funny it's like it's very meta yeah it's you know but it, it's a little film about storytelling right, right exactly yeah okay yeah you're right that's better but that that you know the plea it's all true has no you know obviously it's just it doesn't a matter plea, you know plea and no one cares <laughs> it's great yeah 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 so it's kind of this like it's a matter film about writing and creative prose and filmmaking in this vicious way and really uh, vicious. I bet it's about Salons yeah. himself too so it's not everyone is implicated yeah um, very hard yeah, to so, sit through so you know get yourself prepared if you are at all sensitive to these things fine. but I feel like sensitive like I think, yeah I, I it's especially hard when you recognize it so much if you've been through mm. some kind of MFA environment or any kind of film documentary related I don't know so yeah. basically media media stuff that's so so vicious and so disgusting so you recognize <laughs> it immediately it's true yeah but yeah okay shall we move on to have something sure I just wanted to segue to something yeah. totally mm -hmm. different um, completely different okay um, I like to recommend this film just because again I'm just talking mainly from the experience of teaching I've you know, most films that you show, they almost on principle, a lot of people are not going to like just because, you know, they're being it's being force fed to students. But I um, I would uh, in my film history class, I would show a film called Kung Fu Hustle um, mm -hmm. to represent, you know, the kind of proud tradition of martial arts cinema in Hong Kong and Chinese filmmaking. It's a it's a co-production of Hong Kong and China um, co-produced. Um, it was in a, a colossal international hit. Um, it. it it really made Stephen Chow, you know, at least briefly internationally famous. He's hugely famous, of course, in a lot of the world, in Asia, and he has a wide regional spread. But, you know, he's he really um, got as close to his goal as he was ever going to get of being um, an auteur for a Western market. He also did Shaolin Soccer. 
which was you know less of a success, but a success too. But this one was a, a colossal hit, even in the United States. I still, I think it's still in the top ten of favorite films. It's a really raucous, um, hilarious um, film um, that can get gets away with paying tribute to. You know, again, Hong Kong, especially Hong Kong filmmaking history. It also, but it also ties in some of a lot of reference to American filmmaking. He's trying for a kind of deliberate crossover, and so you get introduced in a really wonderful way. If you don't, and again, it's a it's a nice film. I was thinking in terms again of if you don't have a lot of experience of that whole type of filmmaking, this is a great introductory film because it's going to be citing and quoting and bringing to the fore the elements that make that whole extended and really glorious genre. Great. It's the most kinetic filmmaking. Um, It's designed to be both hilarious often and just physically as exciting as you can get just through stunting and fight skills that are, you know, shot in such a way that you get the full impact of them, which you don't always in American filmmaking. There's an awful lot of overcutting in American action, especially in recent decades, that can kill the impact of what the body can do that's amazing. And in the Hong Kong style, you really got the body at the center, mostly because they're using the performers who can really do you know, the stunts and the fights. Um, and so they can just stay on it and you can really revel in, in the body on film, which is, can be super exciting. <laughs> yeah, I've never even heard of it before you you put it on the list. Yeah, I should I should check it out. What's um what would be something in the tradition of this film that I might have watched other ones. Just well, you probably might have just because Bruce Lee stays super famous. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of Bruce Lee citations. Um, Stephen Chow was raised on Bruce Lee movies, in fact, and used to do. He, tr- he tried to teach himself uh, martial arts by imitating Bruce Lee. So he's kind of paying tribute. He he's a char- He's a he's a very he's doing very classic plotting, very classic character work. He's a he's a guy who seems like a complete loser at life. He's a petty criminal. Um, He wants to be a big time criminal because he's had a disappointment in youth when he really wanted to be a good guy along the kind of Bruce Lee lines. And he wasn't up to it physically. So he he becomes a a petty criminal and he's frustrated with his life. And then through these kind of miraculous means, he he his true inner self, his true chief low is is let loose. And he 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 is transformed into the greatest hero in a world of heroes, the world of heroes is a big part of it where um, there are going to be many people within the community and there's a really downtrodden community called Pigsty Alley <laughs> in the film. It's very funny and you've got all these character types that are supposed to be funny. There's a this is super tough landlady, for example, who smokes cigarettes and her hair is always in curlers and she's super unglamorous. She's going to turn out. She, there, there's going to be a reveal that shows even even she she might be she's she's one of the greatest heroes and that means they have insane fight skills um, um, and they can suddenly just call forth you know, almost supernatural fighting abilities. Um, so, so it's a, there's this elevated world, in other words, embedded in the very, in the very, very ordinary, <laughs> everyday, scatological, um, kind of lowly world um, of rural, mainly working class um, China. Um, and it's citing old films that, for those in the tradition, they're going to probably know about or recognize. So, the Pigsty Alley is based on a 70s film called House of 72 Tenants. But there are also going to be quotations from like Spider Man. So, a 
dying a dying hero is warrior hero is going to say with great power comes great responsibility which is a line from spider-man and there's quotes from the shining and from the godfather and from you know a million american films because stephen chow was challenged he wanted to make he wanted to cross over he wanted to have a bigger audience he wanted to reach western audiences and he was told you'll never do it um he had he was mainly famous or at least partly famous for a kind of cantonese comedy style that involves a kind of ver- very fast-paced verbal patter and they just said there's no way you can't possibly translate and so he Supposedly, he took this as a personal challenge and says, I'm going to do it. I'll figure it out. Um, And so he does a a lot of this. There's a lot of CGI effects, which normally you wouldn't have seen in the Hong Kong tradition. But it's a way of indicating I'm trying to cross over to big budget, big spectacle Western audiences. So I'm going to do a bunch of CGI gags. So there's a scene where it's like a a Roadrunner cartoon where people are chasing each other and their legs start to create a kind of little, just become little swirling circles um, as they run at at supersonic speed, that kind of thing. Um, So he does a lot of sight gags that are like that. He's a big fan of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, for example. So he, he, his own film education is very wide ranging and it really shows um, in the film. So at the time, it was pretty well known in America for a film that was a Hong Kong Chinese um, co-production. Um, uh, it's faded since then, so I'm always trying to to push it on people. Seriously, watch this film. I think humor often helps, um, you know, get things across when people are any so somewhat resistant. And there's a ton of humor here. One of the first things you're going to see is these really vicious gangsters who are who are taking over, and they wind up attacking Pig Alley and they're called the Axe Gang and they all carry these, they all wear like Abe Lincoln top hats and suits and carry these axes and they and they wind up doing this little dance number at the beginning which just seems to throw everybody. Um, even if you, you're used to that um, genre, you're, you're like, what's happening? And it, so it's very daring and very funny in some of its um, effects um, in a way that was so suggestive of Chow being able to go on. I thought he was going to, he was supposedly going to make Kung Fu Hustle 2. It never happened though he's still claiming it's going to happen someday. Now he's in China and they're just feeding him boatloads of money and he's creating hit after hit for the Asian market and a big regional reach outside that. But in the West, you're not you're not even hearing about Mermaid or what's it called? The Journey West um, is these these um, films he's making that are colossal, colossal hits. And we're just not even hearing about them. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I know. I'm, I can't quite because I know so little about that. Like in just general, well, yeah. I think China cinema at large. It wouldn't because um, I mean, I was it's because I was in the Bay Area in the 80s and 90s, and a ton of local theaters would run the latest martial arts film, and there was a big audience for them. It's interesting, and that's how I got into it. Yeah. Well, they should do. We probably should at some point do some whole episode on some national films of other countries. Yeah. Yeah, so, but since we're sticking to public service. Yeah, today is just public service. Yeah, I guess we're definitely not going to, and I'm thinking about it, not going to have time to discuss everything, but we will publish some kind of PDF with our, right, top choices. I guess what I did want to cover on air, definitely Total Recall, mm-hmm. which I feel, I mean, obviously it's like a, was, I guess, widely successful mainstream film, but I'm not sure people give it enough credit for it being not just, funny and fun both funny and fun but also like the best adaptation of Philip K. Dick actually ever attempted on screen I'm to, and to me because it actually 
really gets both Philip K. Dick's humor, but also it is a truly kind of philosophical action film where I don't actually know of any other action film with a true kind of philosophical underpinning that asks those questions, right? What is self? I would define by previous actions. And um, yeah, so that's, I f- that's actually one of my favorite films of all times, which is weird to think about it because it's such a kind of like huge uh, spectacle kind of in a way. How do you rate it um, in relation to Blade Runner, which most people would probably name as the Philip K. Dick <laughs> Well, I actually, yeah, I have a very specific take on mm. it. Blade Runner, I mean, I know it's a good film. I, I do like it. But if if you talk about adaptation of Philip K. Dick, it's not successful at all. Because Philip K. Dick in um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Ship, which I love is a like, is it like a novella, uh, there's a lot of humor in it. And Blade Runner is not funny at all. Mm-hmm. And also, I can't believe, I mean, I, I'll just say that he, what, what's the drag really, Scott? He's a fucking idiot. If... Uh, he didn't include any of the animals of the whole animal storyline from the book into the movie because part of the kind of like genius and when you read now living in this urban hellhole most of us live these days is that there's this whole kind of part of the book that uh, why it's called like to androids drip of electric ship that actually animals completely disappeared from earth and uh, they're very rare um to own any kind of animal is basically is a huge investment you have to be kind of rich to do that and everyone is kind of <laughs> sort of their status of a fam of a person sometimes can be measured in how many and what kind of animal they own uh, or he, he or she owns and sort of um, one of the main characters at some point owns a sheep but it dies and so he replaces it with an electric sheep because it's much cheaper and they're like this android animals that are made for the people who don't want to be embarrassed by being too poor not owning any animal so they have this kind of <laughs> proxies so there's like I don't I can go for far further and further but it's, it gets it has this kind of paranoid but genius kind of whole layer that and also humor on top of it that Ridley Scott being unfunny whatever he's like I know functional filmmaker just didn't get it and Paul Verhoeven and Tall Recall adapting that um, short story uh, we will will remember it for you wholesale did get it it's funny it has it has the wit in it and that's the only Philip K. Dick adaptation among what was the other big one scanners whatever it was literally the only one that is funny Mm -hmm. Minority, Minority Report probably is all right but I don't remember it being funny you know, Spielberg adapted mm. that. So that's kind of my take on that. But besides the humor that Paul Verhoeven got in Tall Recall, I just like the this like paranoid and also like nature of the film that by, at the very end, uh, I obviously not spoil it for you, it's an old film. We still don't know whether it's all, all a fantasy right. of of going to Mars and being a hero and saving a girl in the world and blah, blah, blah. Or is the main character really an agent whose brain was wiped Mm. (laughs) and he had this mission to save Martians from this evil corporation who is basically stealing and controlling their oxygen. Anyway, and that's like this whole crazy narrative. Basically, it also captures the the, um, usual Philip K. Dick narrative that we kind of barely know what's real, what's not, and it's all very confusing. And the reality mm. is confusing. You never know what's true, and um, yeah, and you don't know who you are. <laughs> and you sometimes even get confused in your own brain, which exactly what happens to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, what's interesting in the film is that I guess why I call it also philosophical is that um, if you believe that the character is really that agent, uh, the, 
what is it, the special agent, CIA agent or mm. something like that, that he decides at some point to go against what he was, his self was initially, and to go with the people and what he kind of learned from them, despite that who he was as a person before that. Yeah, it has this interesting strains that makes you really think about, I guess, just the the self and, right. and the, the actions and how deep or something profound your sense of self even is. So what is brain? What is memory? What if you erase it? What would you do? Right, yeah. Can you be brainwashed? Yeah, I, I don't know. There are all these questions. I mean, they're obvious once you watch it, I guess, more than once and not, or not even once if there's all this spectacle on top of the score story because it's a very, it's like a wildly fun film. But then there's this and I think it's, yeah, I think it's a very profound film actually. Yeah. And it's not given enough credit for that because I know someone hates it. I think, for instance, David Cronenberg uh, was originally supposed to direct right. it. And he's the one who developed some of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the woman with three breasts and all the weird uh, Martian, weird freaks. It's very Cronenberg and like very scary, very good. But then he abandoned it and... And Verhoeven came and did make this the movie, and I think Cronenberg hated it for uh, for it being too flippant or something like that. But I mean, I don't agree. I don't think it's flippant, and I don't think it's well. I, too see, I, I'm the opposite. Yeah. I had I only saw it when it came out initially, and okay. it was the one I I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Why? Well, mainly because. Well, maybe it was because of the hype at the time, but it was definitely being kind of sold and seemed to me to be presented as mm-hmm. such a Schwarzenegger film, and Schwarzenegger seems to have nothing to do with the. A whole sensibility that seems like Philip K. Dick. So for me, that just it cut against any of the tension of losing yourself or you know not knowing what's reality because it's Schwarzenegger. I mean, to make Schwarzenegger in any way vulnerable to anything, you got to go as far yeah. as Predator, which is you have to have an evolutionary <laughs> superior being. Which, by the way, huge fan of Predator. Could have talked to that was yeah, on my I list. I would have definitely talked about Predator. Um, but so the Schwarzenegger effect really interfered. Um, for me, anyway, and you know, and of course, Spielberg doing Philip K. Dick is just like doesn't make any sense to me at all. Though pe- there are people, that, <laughs> yeah, people okay. who love exactly, you know, Minority Report, and I have such a hard time with that film. But at any rate, so I didn't get it. Admittedly, I have not seen it in all these years, so I might like it better if I watched it now. And you know, point you're quite right about Ridley Scott having no humor. His two strongest films, Blade Runner and Alien, are all about. You know, they're they're serious, Phil. <laughs> There's no question. I, I can trying to think of any humorous moment in either one of them. They definitely no. aren't doing that. But Blade Runner's among its great triumphs is is the look of it is so perfectly seems to me <laughs> Philip K. Dick world that it it's just awe inspiring from the moment you start watching. That's my one of my favorite things. It just it drowns you in convincing world of Philip K. Dick, which is one it seems like one of the hardest things to accomplish when you're doing a film and nobody ever seems to accomplish it. I can't, I literally can't remember that well, what it looked like. I remember it looking a little junky. Mm-hmm. Total Recall, which seemed intentional. Yeah, it is very yeah. intentionally junky and kind of cheap, cheap, very cheap looking. Yeah. yeah I, I think they shot it in the subway. Everything looked kind of like, a, like as if it's um, like cheap furniture, everything like the screens kind of like, yeah plastic i don't know yeah they were shooting i think in mexico city i don't know it looked like futurism cheap almost like where we are now everything's cheap new buildings are cheap everything's trash so it's like aged well that's what i guess Mm. i would argue for you to watch it again it aged really well and it just seemed like oh it's it's the 80s and and so much of film looks like crap commercial cinema just looks like fucking crap that's when they start making it because set with the idea that it's going to play on television and they're like well since it's going to play on television it doesn't need to look good that was before people had you know beautiful 
beautiful widescreen blah 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 TV. So it's true. Yeah, interesting. No, no, that aesthetic is is a very expensive film. So that trash aesthetic there is definitely on purpose. Mm-hmm. It's not just you know I don't know how many what is it. 200 i don't know how many million dollars it cost yeah so it was definitely an aesthetic choice yeah, no, but I, yeah, I i don't mind I, I liked it i think it was true to kind of what how we live today which is like advanced technology but trash, but trash. yeah and you know ridley scott's version of a trashed world is it's it's got the urban dis- distressed and rusted but it's an overall what it's an you just got to give it to it's an overall beautiful vision there's just no way it isn't beautiful it's incredibly beautiful so it's sort of like it can you live with it being supposedly junked but beautiful sort of like you know pris is you know still the most beautiful <laughs> she's one of the androids played by young daryl hannah and she's she's still you know just some sort of model of female beauty and rutger hauer is a model of male beauty and you're it's just dazzling to look at it's his peak i think yeah. Oh, yeah. The peak. Oh, like, yeah. oh absolutely. Oh, yeah. He's yeah, still yeah. his favorite film. Obviously, he looks mm-hmm. back on himself as young and incredibly beautiful and with the role of a lifetime as Roy Batty. I think even Philip yeah. K. Dick said you know, he was he, he dies during somewhere during the making of but he sees some of the footage and he says, that's that's it. You've got the exact look. <laughs> and he's the greatest Roy Batty you could have ever done. So, you know, there's just. It, admittedly, it's it's got its reputation is became so huge that there, I've seen the backlash, which infuriates me. So I've seen people online, you know, just trashing Blade Runner, and obviously Ridley Scott is easy to trash. And so now Blade Runner is stupid, but then everyone goes out and watches Blade Runner twenty forty six, which is the worst piece of crap I ever saw in my life. It is crap. Oh yeah. my god! And saying that's better than Blade Runner, and I just like I just want to go oh, commit mayhem on the public. Um, but. Yeah, it was excruciatingly long and boring, and, boring and just and, out of control, not funny, but not even pretty. It's just so derivative. Everything was so derivative. And it's just it's derivative just in the dumbest way. I mean, there's old Harrison Ford in Las Vegas. You're just like, why? What? <laughs> yeah, that was bad. At least we can agree on the on a bad Philip K. Dick. And that was it. That was a really bad yeah. one. Yeah. So, yeah, Blade Runner, Total Recall. One or one of the other or both, and you can pick based on you know descriptions. And I'll have to look at Total Recall again. Maybe it's it's greater than I realized at the time. Well, should we keep going? I don't know. For a little we've bit we've more? talked an age. How? We've talked for hours. I mean, I was going to go on and talk about so many different films. Coraline. I know one of the first of the Leica films, which I'm really cheerleading for this company because they're a kind of anti-Disney Pixar. I was going to talk about Emily Creatures. I was going to talk about a lot of older films. I was going to give you a silent film to watch if you know you if you decide to be really daring, and that's Man with a Movie Camera because its editing is at such a rapid fire pace and it, in a way that it can delight a contemporary person on like a lot of silent film yeah i won't sell i won't present it as you did that it's like you need to be brave to watch it's like a fun film entertaining weird oh i just mean if you want to you be know? brave enough to do silent film yeah. which most people don't. oh that's true most people don't yeah yeah. So, yeah we were gonna go into a whole section on you know older films say pre what 70s films um but yeah i think we're running out of time it would have to be a part two or something I know, either part two or, I mean, we'll definitely 
sort of um, make available some kind of yeah, we'll do our a list. Own <laughs> list, <laughs> our own list. But I want to talk about so much more, like some few Bunyala's movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Grand Booth, Marco Ferrari. That didn't happen. A whole bunch of Russian films. But that um, we might have a separate episode on the, on the might, Russian cinema. Yeah. We did wing it today. <laughs> But, well, I mean, we had a list to draw from, but, yeah, but we, there was we no way we could get through the whole list. So we, we did our best. Yeah. We almost got through. I almost got through my sort of through At five. Least five. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, well, you know, let us yeah, know. We'll see how it goes. Well, if you listen, if you like it, we can do, we can part, do part two. two or you can, you know, also just say, how about this film? Because, you know, I know I'm haunted by the idea that there's a million films that I could have said that I would have liked to better. And um, why didn't you say this film as a guaranteed great film that everyone should watch? I'm happy to hear <laughs> That's about that. True. That would be great. That's true. It's hard. It's like how you even approach that. You need to it's like segment it. Exactly. Yeah. Like what's the greatest, if just a horror film thing, just a comedy thing, just a, yeah, exactly. Just an action film, whatever. Um, or just a drama, a serious drama. <laughs> I mean, you know, for like the line came to my mind because, you know, as what's considered a, a real reader mm-hmm. is like the person who like rereads actually. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the fairy movie. So in a way, this movie is, I guess, the real criteria should have been which I not necessarily thought about is like what are the movies you can rewatch and they remain strong because they're so amazing and they're complex and there's like many layers and whatever many details mm-hmm. so that could have been the criteria but I guess most of the ones we did name I think do fit I there think they you mostly, can rewatch them yeah yeah I think everyone I it's named it's not like a one time oh absolutely mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right Th- that could that could be a separate conversation what's a great one-off film that you should never try to watch again <laughs> <laughs> that's true well alright so let us know if you want a part two it's, it's still a little under discussion what we're doing next time but we will uh, we'll let you know if we decide to do that or change our minds to do something else yeah and sorry I, have, uh, I actually am sick I have some kind of flu so my voice might have been a bit off but but I think it, it worked alright so till till next, next time bye, bye. <laughs>